Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday we learned of the death of the so-called Man of the Hole. He was the last remaining member of an uncontacted indigenous group in Brazil. And this got me remembering the Amazonian Synod from October 2019 and the statement of one so-called Catholic missionary who said he was proud that in his 30 years in the Amazonian region, he had never baptized anyone. Apparently, he thought it was somehow a form of cultural imperialism for a European priest to impose Roman Catholicism on Amazonian tribesmen. This is nonsense. Presenting the gospel in a foreign culture is difficult. One must remain faithful to the gospel, and one must also not distort or demean the cultural framework of those you're trying to evangelize. So Christian missionaries have been working at this since the first century. And it's true that since the 19th century, we've learned a lot more about cross-cultural communication. But since the first century, the gospel has gone out to Gentile peoples that had no familiarity with the history of ancient Israel or their traditions of sacrifice and atonement or the coming Messiah. Now, during the Amazonian Synod, I did an interview that dealt with this issue of enculturation of the gospel and the faithful sharing of it by looking at the martyrdom of five young evangelical Protestant missionaries who were speared to death in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Two years later, two missionary women, the widow of one of the slain men and the sister of another, with the help of a native woman, were able to establish peaceful relations with the same people who had killed their loved ones, and the gospel was effectively presented. The whole problem of enculturation is something that we don't often talk about, but it's hard work. It's not just a matter of learning a language, you know, and then, uh, you know, getting down there with enthusiasm and inspiration and presenting the gospel. It's, it's a matter of entering into the culture and the mindset of a people. In the first century, we can see the apostles going back into Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel, but to a people who already had some idea of resurrection, blood sacrifice, covenant, atonement, the oneness of God. What do you do to give other people who don't have that background of Israel's long covenantal history, what do you give to help them hear the gospel when they have no idea, for instance, of sacrificial atonement or even one God? Well, there's one woman who's given this a profound amount of thought, Dr. Catherine Long, is the author of God in the Rainforest. It's a tale of martyrdom and redemption in Amazonian Ecuador. She's a former associate professor and chair of the history department at Wheaton College. Her first book, The Revival of 1857-58, Interpreting an American Religious Awakening, was awarded the Brewer Prize for Outstanding Scholarship in Church History. And uh, Dr. Long, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's, if you would, just uh, give us the thumbnail version of the story of the slaying of the five missionaries, and then we'll, you know, unpack it from there. Okay, well, there were these five missionaries. They worked on different mission stations in the Amazonian rainforest area. They represented different missionary groups, but they were friends, and they had heard about these people, the Waudani, who had a... Um, a reputation in Ecuador as killers, um, as mysterious and isolated people. No one really knew much about them. No one had been able to make peaceful contact with them. These young men decided that they wanted to do that um, in many ways because this, these were a people group who had never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus. 
and this captured the, the missionaries' imagination as well, they also thought that with um, the innovations of the modern era, particularly the airplane, that it gave them advantages and opportunities to, to uh, contact people that missionaries had not had in the past. So part of what they did was they would fly over uh, Waurani clearings or homes when they discovered them and dropped gifts, machetes, um, buttons, salt, different things. And, and soon they added pictures of themselves and things like that, and they, they decided to try and uh, make peaceful contact. What they did not know was that the Wardani at the time, the group that they were trying to contact, the subgroup of Wardani that they were trying to contact, uh, was in the midst of an internal feud. They were fighting among themselves. Mm-hmm. So the men landed in Wardani territory. They made a peaceful contact with Wardani. But uh, two days later, uh, six Wardani men returned and killed all five of the missionaries by spearing them. And uh, this was probably, well, I argue, one of the most publicized missionary stories in the second half of the 20th century for American evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And it, part of that was because it had an unexpected um, uh, sequel, because two years later, the, the wife of one of the, the widow of one of the men and the sister of the other were able to make peaceful contact with the help of uh, a wild woman named Dayuma. And they uh, ultimately introduced seeds of the gospel, some of the Christianity to the Bawdani. And so uh, the, the, it looks as though the story has a, a very happy ending, right? I mean, that's the way it probably popularly was portrayed. That's correct, yeah. It's, it's usually been portrayed. Well, it's kind of like I, I think what I, was, what I was struggling with in doing my research is that it's either portrayed as a, an inspirational story that has basically a happy ending, or it's portrayed generally by anthropologists and others as a story of missionaries messing up uh, indigenous culture. Okay, yeah, and I kind of wanted right. to go somewhere in between. Yes, very good. And and uh, what I'd like to do, and I've on those along those uh, towards that end, tell me what the critics uh, and they seem to have regular criticisms of uh, Christian missionaries that they somehow are cultural imperialists. Um, What's the basis for their criticism generally? Well, because because the, the missionaries aren't introducing new ideas into um, traditional cultures, I think that there is, on, and I don't want to oversimplify anthropologist standpoint, but I do think that there's there's an attitude that culture should, among some people, that culture should not change, that somehow they are in sort of pristine condition and any incursion is going to create change, and that change will not necessarily be good. And so that's one of the big objections, even to the point in the 1970s and 1980s, that even any kind of proselytization, any kind of sharing the gospel was, was imperialism or it was, uh, well, basically imperialistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, does this depend upon, you know, the, the kind of noble savage uh, ideal that we associate with Rousseau? That's, it's part of it. Um, there's a noble savage. There's also the idea of um, savage as kind of innocent child, yeah. sort of the yeah. Edenic. The overarching argument is that the global expansion of Christianity, um, as you look at it on a case-by-case basis, is actually very complicated, a lot messier than neither the myth-makers or the critics are willing to acknowledge. And that's the way that you come at this. You... Mm-hmm. Not only tell the story uh, and demonstrate how the popular version of the story 
got extraordinary publicity in 1956 mm-hmm. and later. But you also right. take you also take us for the next you know a uh, few decades to see what actually happened to the Orani. Um, missionaries make decisions with unintended consequences. You often point out indigenous people exercise agency in unexpected ways. Strange things happen, like oil gets discovered or uh, isolated groups are pulled into global systems. Um, what happened uh, after the, uh, the Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint began to see the first uh, converts? Well, um, when they began to see the first, they, they, they began to understand what was the aspect of the gospel message that would speak to the Waurani. And this, I argue, is one of the main contributions that the missionaries made. And I'm not the, only, I'm not the first one to argue that. Um, mm-hmm. Anthropologist Jim Yost, Jim Yost and others have, have argued the same thing. But that um, the Waurani were looking for a way to end the feud. They were tied up in, a, in a, uh, a web of internal feuds. It's amazing. Something like two-thirds of um, all deaths in the, among the Waurani in the first half of the 20th century were violent deaths. Waurani wow. killing other Waurani. Um, wow. And then another third, I think, were at the hands of outsiders. But um, they were extremely violent. They were, some, some of them thought they were destroying themselves, and, but they couldn't figure out a way to stop it because they had gone on for so long, and trickery was a large part of this. So if I killed one of your relatives, I might not, you might not seek revenge for 20 years. Yeah. I think you've forgotten it was all over, and then we have a meal together and you kill somebody in my family. Yeah. And so they couldn't figure out a way to signal uh, enough until one of the, until the two women came, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Rachel Saint, and they came um, knowing that their, their loved ones had been killed by this group and the group would expect them to come seeking revenge. Right. Instead, they came giving the message of peace. And at the same time, um, they, they encouraged the Waurani. I, I always laugh and say sort of the, the bottom line of the gospel for the Waurani was in the name of Jesus, do not spear. <laughs> and, um, yes, so like, yes, that's good. I was talking to some students a couple of days ago, and I said the bar was a little low at the time. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, the, that came to be sort of a sign initially of genuine Christianity, and it, and it happened that way because one of the most prominent people, one of the most prominent men, who had gone along on the spear, who had helped spear the killed missionaries, he decided to believe in Jesus as much as he could, sort of as much as he understood, which wasn't a whole lot. But once he embraced the gospel, he said he was not going to spear anymore. And everybody knew he could. They all knew he had a reputation. Mm-hmm. But if he said, if my sister's killed, if, my, if I'm killed, I don't want anyone to take revenge, I'm no longer spearing. Well, he did it, and, he, and his, later his sister actually was killed, and he didn't take revenge. So he did it and kind of sealed it, and that made that the, the uh, gospel message. And that was probably the biggest change, because it enabled the Waurani to begin to move towards peace. Um, now, I don't want to over-exaggerate and say that they all just all of a sudden dropped their spears, because it wasn't that easy. But there was a shift at that time towards uh, a peaceful coexistence and towards them uh, reuniting with one another, which is something they very much needed to do because it's a very small group of people, and they needed spouses for their kids and mm-hmm. different things that would help them to flourish as a people. Um, how many uh, Wardani were there? There are about 500 at the time. 
that the missionaries were killed. I think there's in the neighborhood of 2,000 today. That would include some that have intermarried with the Quechua people who live nearby. And uh, they were divided up into uh, kinship uh, networks? Right. Family. They were divided up into various uh, kinship groups. The whole, the whole group were, were, were related to one another. But with those, in those, there were sub-kinship groups that uh, fought against each other and uh, moved together, controlled aspects of Waurani territory at the same time. Who was the, uh, the young woman uh, named Dayumi? Dayumi? She was a young Wau woman who fled the violence of her people, probably, I'm trying to remember, which is about maybe 12 or 13, I think. Occasionally, a few Waurani women would try to go to the outside world just to escape the possibility of being speared. And, and her family had been involved in these, in these fights, and so she did that. She went to a hacienda on the edge of the rainforest and uh, was accepted there by the, uh, by the, the uh, hacienda owner of the peon. The uh, excuse me, the the uh, the the owner of the hacienda, Don Carlos Sevilla, mm-hmm. and he kept her as a field hand. She worked there for about ten or eleven years, and that's where Rachel Saint found her. Okay. Rachel Saint found her and befriended Dayuma, and uh, Dayuma became a cultural broker, sort of the bridge between her people in the jungle and the two women. And she was very key in them being able to make peaceful contact. Dr. Long, hold it there for a moment. We'll come back, and on the other side of the break, continue. My guest is Dr. Catherine Long, God in the Rainforest. It's a tale of martyrdom and redemption in Amazonian Ecuador. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with Dr. Catherine Long, author of God in the Rainforest, A Tale of Martyrdom and Redemption in Amazonian Ecuador. And uh, we were talking just before the break about the young woman, Dioma, who uh, escaped and then began speaking with Rachel Saint, who was one of the missionaries there. Now, this Dioma contacts her before the five missionaries are killed, right? That's true. Uh, well, Rachel, con- Rachel found Ayuma. Rachel felt that she was called to reach the Waurani, that Waurani were her people. And so she was trying to, do, to lay the groundwork as she would have as a member of the Summer Institute of Linguistics or the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Mm-hmm. She did not know that her brother and his friends were making their own plans at about the same time, but she definitely had uh, met Ayuma. She met Dayuma, I believe, early in 1955, or went to the Hacienda. And the men started their work about September, October of 1955. So they were pretty close. Why did the, uh, the five missionaries and their wives decide to keep secret their operation to reach the what they called the Aukas, uh, which was the yeah. pejorative name for the Wairani? Wairani? Right. Well, they were afraid that, um, that other people would intervene if they found out that what they were doing. They were afraid that the Ecuadorian government might want to stop them from doing it because, they wouldn't, because of the risk of violence. They were afraid that other missionaries might hear about it and want to, want to be a part. And there's a little bit of, of hubris or pride, I think, in there, too. They wanted to be there first, and mm-hmm. they wanted to do it without advice from other people, which in, in some ways I can understand some of their desire for secrecy, but I wish they would have talked more with senior missionaries, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of training did, they have, did the five have? basically pretty well trained. All of them, all of them except Nate Saint, the pilot, had college degrees. 
Mm-hmm. Um, many, several of them had studied anthropology, at least had taken some classes. They hadn't been in Ecuador a long time, which might be a disadvantage. I think Nate Saint was the longest. He'd been there seven years, I believe. I'm not absolutely certain. And then the others, it was like three years, four years. And so they and they thought they had they they had prepared. They certainly had thought it through, like they took material to build a house or build a build a platform to sleep on in Wairani territory, which they put up in a tree so that they'd be a little bit safer at night and different things like that. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think they really understood the power of anger in Wow culture. That the Waodani were perfectly capable of being very friendly one day and turning around and killing you the next day. And they were, they, the men were unbeknown to them caught up in this internal feud that was destroying this, this Waodani group at the same time. They were fighting over who was going to get to marry a certain woman. And, uh, and so they, it was kind of like they were all mad at each other. And so one of the, one of the elderly men said, or the older men said, let's, let's go kill some Kowodi, some outsiders. And so, so displace our anger. Displaced anger, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that would have been, I mean, it would have been hard to prepare for that, that you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sure, sure. Why were uh, Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot uh, successful in the few years after? I think primarily because they had Dayuma. And these were, these people that killed the five men were Dayuma's family. Her uncle, her brother, her mother was in that part of the family. She was at, on the beach, but didn't participate in the killing. Um, and so when Dayuma, and, and Dayuma went back in to talk to her family, she could ask them, is it okay if these women come? And they had, the Waodani also had realized to a certain extent that maybe they hadn't made the best decision in killing these guys, but it was a spur of the moment. I mean, the Waodani didn't do cold-blooded things. They just got mad at somebody and killed them. Yeah. And so Dayuma was able to, to pave the way and also acted a bit of as a bro- broker once they got there making sure that both sides understood what was going on, the women mm-hmm. and, um, and the Baudani. So I think she was really the, the major difference. Also, Elizabeth and Rachel knew a little bit more of the language. Yes. Because the men tried, to, men tried to learn some of it, but they really didn't. They didn't get it right. I did not realize until I read your book that Rachel Saint had been on This Is Your Life with Diumos. Mm-hmm. So last night I went and I watched, I watched the episode, and it was really it was fascinating uh, to see... How interested, how interested mainstream, you know, popular television was in that story. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was a different America then, I guess. But there was a, I mean, the host of the show, Ralph Edwards, was very, seemed very comfortable referring to the Word of God. And, you know, there was extraordinary respect shown to Rachel Saint for her, not only her uh, character, you know, her willingness to stick it out, but um, what her respect for the mission uh, of reaching mm-hmm. out like that, and it's just hard to imagine something like that happening today. It is. You're right. I think it's certainly not in the, in the kind of uh, national scale that it was that it did then. Yeah. I mean, part of it is is that it's a different America. I mean, Ralph Edwards was a good Methodist mm. his whole life. Yep. And um, and Cameron Townsend, the head of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, he knew that, and he kind of aimed his publicity towards people like that. But there are a number of people in positions of power who either had evangelical background or um, were sympathetic, at least, to the evangelical, the message of the gospel. I mean, they Mm -hmm. understood the gospel, which in today's world, many people in those same places would not. Did did people raise questions about uh, whether the missionary should have been, uh, should have, 
def- use use the fought back, uh, you know, use weapons to, to fight back. Yes, there's still some controversy around this. In part, I don't think that actually, I don't think people wanted them necessarily to use weapons, but some have accused them of doing that, that they weren't quite as heroic as, as has been presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did have weapons with them, and they had some pistols and a couple rifles, largely because in the jungle you would want those sorts of things for against animals or sure. snakes and things. Other than. But um, they had agreed ahead of time that they would not shoot uh, the Waurani, uh, based on the idea that they, they knew that they were going to heaven, but they weren't sure about the Waurani. Yeah. And so they didn't want to uh, send them to into eternity without having had the chance to hear the gospel. There was, um, in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a struggle when they, when they were killed, there was a, a pistol that went off. And, um, and some people have argued that it was intentional. Some people argued that it was an accident. Um, I just don't think we can ever really know. Yeah. Because I, I think that they were serious, but if somebody was coming at me, well, if somebody was coming at me with a 10-foot spear and I had a pistol in my pocket, you know, you don't know what you would do in the instant. <laughs> right. um, no, no, I... You know, I don't want to be too harsh on these people. No, me but, either. Yeah, no. But, <laughs> yeah. but, then, but then apparently the first, the first rescue groups saw quite a few spent shells on the beach, and I think they fired quite a bit in the air. I mean, the Waurani were very clear that the men could have shot them. They knew the men could have shot them if they'd wanted to afterwards. So uh, how many years later did the uh, Wadani begin to recite the story uh, so that uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint were able to flesh out the narrative a bit? Um, I don't think. I don't think that they, they actually think, told the story more to, um, more to uh, an anthropologist who worked with them with the oh. Summer Institute of Linguistics, a man okay. named Jim Yost. Yeah, and he and uh, someone from the Time Life group, I believe, were down there, and they did some extensive interviews with the Waurani. They went to the Palm Beach area, to the, the stretch of sand on the Kurai River that they called Palm Beach, and they tried to get the the men to kind of act out who was where and what they did and all that kind of thing. And then uh, Nate Saint's son Steve has done has talked quite a bit to Waurani, um, and so they he he has published a couple of versions of what happened. Um, Elizabeth Elliot did some interviewing of people at the time and got uh, some contemporary accounts from the Waodani. So I, I was surprised, actually, to find there were quite a few accounts of what happened that were out and about once I started looking for them. They just hadn't really been during, uh, processed very much. Um, so, do we, so do you think, do the stories cohere? I mean, do they, all, do they make reasonable sense? Yeah, I think that they do. I mean, I think that this story... That the, that the men were caught up in this in this inter, intra-tribal feud, that makes a lot of sense, and I do think that that's been verified. Uh, the idea of the pistol, which, again, some critics have said that the Summer Institute of Linguistics lied about that because they didn't want anyone to think that the, the men were less heroic than they had been presented mm-hmm. to be. I, don't, I didn't find any place where they lied. And early on, Rachel Saint and Elizabeth, particularly Rachel Saint, did not necessarily understand everything. So she might have gotten some of the facts wrong, but she wasn't. Nobody was intentionally trying to fabricate a story. Yeah, yeah. And and some of them mentioned, you know, the idea that uh, a man had been killed with a pistol. The Waurani knew. People knew that quite a while before it started being a, a point of controversy. Mm, okay. Um, 
you spend a little bit of time talking about Catholic missionary efforts uh, down there. Uh, fill us in a little bit about that, because that's that's a story that certainly is not uh, as well known as the story of the the five um, missionaries who were killed. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating story. I really enjoyed finding out about it, and part of the reason it's not known very well is that all the most of the sources about it are in Spanish, and which certainly is not that much of a problem. It's a little bit of a barrier in terms of a story spreading rapidly here in the states. But anyway, um, the Catholic Church uh, was was working in areas on the northern side of Guarani territory. The Protestant missionaries were a little bit more to the south, I think about the south and west. So they're, they're separated, and there's a few groups of Guarani who were living and working along um, the Napo River where the, where the uh, Catholics were. Most of the, the male missionaries were Capuchin fathers, mm-hmm. uh, missionary order, and, um, and they... They were working with actually lots of, they had a fairly large area that they were responsible for on the northern part of the Guarani territory. But a very uh, charismatic and dedicated man named Alejandro Babaca Ugarte, who was a Basque uh, from Spain. He had gone, he had been sent to, uh, to China as part of his missionary assignment. He got kicked out of China when the communists took over and came to Ecuador, I believe, in about 1953 and remained in Ecuador the rest of his life, became an Ecuadorian citizen. He was partially an administrator, but eventually he was assigned to be the uh, apostolic prefect of this, of this area, in um, Agua Rico area. And he, he became very interested in the Waurani, the ones that were in his territory. And he first started out, they started out kind of imitating the Protestants by getting an airplane and trying to find these people but they had, the Catholics had a lot more going on, a lot more responsibilities in terms of taking care of Ecuadorian colonists who came across the mountains to, to, uh, to colonize the territory, supposedly uninhabited territory, which belonged to the Indians, indigenous mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they also had to, were, taking, were taking responsibility for a number of groups of indigenous people. And so, um, so their plates were pretty full. But uh, Father, Father Labaca was a, was a wonderful person. He really... I had a heart for missions. He um, he was a, he was very much a product of the Second Vatican Council. He actually uh, attended, I think, one of the final sessions of the Second Vatican Council. But he was very interested in planting the seeds of the, or looking for the seeds of the word mm-hmm. in other cultures, and and he also um, felt like that 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 uh, he'd been authorized to to do this by the church, and so he and a and a uh, a nun Ines uh, Arango Velasquez were two Catholics who invested their lives. They ultimately were killed by Wyoming. Catherine, can you stay with us a little longer? Sure, I'd love to. Good. My guest, Dr. Catherine Long, is uh, author of God in the Rainforest, A Tale of Martyrdom and Redemption in Amazonian Ecuador. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Harkening back to a conversation we had during the Amazonian Synod with Dr. Catherine Long, uh, at the close of the last segment, we were talking about the death or the martyrdom, really, of uh, two uh, Catholic missionaries in the in uh, Ecuador. Let's pick up the conversation. How long uh, were the uh, Capuchins uh, there in that area of Ecuador? Are they still there? Still are some there. I didn't have did not look at much into the aftermath of, of what happened after the uh, bishop and, and Sister Inez were killed. 
So I don't, but I do. I am. Uh, I am aware that there is. Some, there are some. There is Catholic presence and yeah. the uh, Capuchin presence is still is still there. And I think they went on. They continued to work with the Waurani. It's been a little bit, as I understand it, and I don't know a lot about this, but it's been a little bit. It's just been a different model than the evangelical model, mm-hmm. and it has been more the incarnational model of evangelism. Yes. And so I don't know exactly. Uh, what that has meant, although I do know that they played a tremendously helpful role in preserving the lives of these people and helping them not to be, not to be exploited by outsiders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know the circumstances surrounding their deaths? Uh, yes, they. Um, well, it's, it's complicated, like everything is. But they, <laughs> Father Labaca wanted to reach a group of Warani called the Tagiere, who were. Tigeri, who were um, isolated and uh, still violent, and he was, but he was also because he was also afraid that as the oil companies came into the territory and, and there was oil exploration going on in this time in Wow territory, Wauwani territory, if the oilmen came and they ran into the Tigeri, the outcome would not be good for the Indians, because basically the Indians are um, are in the midst of of the rainfall. Well, the 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 in Ecuador's in Ecuador's from an Ecuador's perspective at this time, uh, it was still kind of a good Indian as a dead Indian sort of thing. And so the I fathers, see. particularly Father Labaca, was afraid that if he didn't contact the Tagueri first, then uh, some of the other people affiliated with the oil companies and the Ecuadorian government might, and the outcome would not be good for the mm-hmm. Tagueri. So that so it pushed him actually, I think, to make a few decisions precipitously, because it came to a point where where it was he and a, and a, and a kind of a rival guy who was not particular, particularly... Well, I always laugh because the Catholics were very charitable towards everyone, evangelicals and all sorts of people. But this particular man, was they were not. They just thought he was out to murder Maradani. Wow. And, um, and so, so Father Labaca really wanted... Again, like the men, he wanted to get there first. And he had always before been able to enter uh, wow clearings, wow homes, and been accepted. In this particular time, he pushed his pushed pushed the opportunity a little too fast, too far, and uh, he he and Sister Inez um, were taken and dropped by her helicopter into this one um, home where the Tagueres supposedly lived. And the next morning, when they came mm-hmm. back, they were um, they were they they had been killed. Wow! To wow. And uh, now they had worked. He had worked. He worked pretty much with the Wardani. Let's see. About 1980 to 1987. Although he also became bishop during that time, and that took away from his the time he had available. Sure. So he was there what three decades? Well, he was he was actually well he was in and out, but he was he was prefect. He was there from 1965 to 1968, and then he was there. Then they took him away to do some administrative stuff, and then he was there from about 1976 to 1980. And then the mid, he was killed in 1987. Okay. So then there, so he was probably five or six, seven years off and on. But he also wrote quite a bit. He wrote in the, uh, in the journals of the diocese and everything. He wrote about uh, the rights of the Waurani. He was very much a defender of the indigenous rights, which was one reason why some of the old government people, oil company people, didn't really want him messing around with the Waurani yeah. very much. Because they'd be a force. They'd be a force of resistance for right. their. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's something we haven't talked about yet at any length, and that is 
Um, how the how does the commercial interests or the political interests of the outside world um, uh, complicate matters for missionaries who are trying to reach uh, you know these uh, people groups with the gospel? Well, yeah, I think one of the things that that struck me was that the when because there was begin, there was contact with the Waurani, and the Waurani themselves wanted contact with the outside world. This was another key element. Mm. But it's not like they wanted to stay isolated in the jungle. Okay. They wanted to have um, the machetes and canoes and goods from the outside world, and so they were eager to meet people as well as um, some people were eager to enter their territory and exploit them, basically. But um, Rachel Saint was not a great Bible translator. She was wonderful at missions and at, at relating to some people, but she was not good at translating. And so the Bible did not get translated into the language of the people, Wow Tedezo, until really um, 1992. Wow. And uh, they arrived and started working on it. During the 18 years that Rachel was most involved, she and Dayuma did the Book of Acts and um, the Gospel of Mark. But it was other people later on who uh, finished the translation work. And I think that that was, a, that was a great loss because by the time that the Bible was translated, the Waurani really were enmeshed in, in outside culture. They didn't have kind of a, a time of isolation to get grounded in the Bible oh. and maybe in some Christian things, even though the missionaries worked tremendously hard to, do the, to, to help them learn to read and to get the Waurani language into written form and things like that. So, um, go ahead. So the Wadani today, then, um, are they very much open to the outside world? What's the kind of relationship between uh, the tribe today and uh, the outside world? Well, I think they are open. It's, it's a matter of communication and a matter of... Um, I just think it's been very difficult for them to negotiate um, exposure to the outside world because, quite frankly, people still tend to want to exploit them. Um, in one way or another. And I do think that that's the Summer Institute of Linguistics missionaries have, have really done a good job of, of, of being honest and being fair with the, uh, with the Waurani. And not always oil companies and uh, the government weren't always uh, quite as balanced in all of that. Yeah. And so the, I think that the problem is that they have not been able to, to really speak with a unified voice. And they've struggled with some of the same things that other groups have, corruption, issues of drugs and alcohol, things mm-hmm. like that, that come with outside contact. And so I think they're doing all right, but it's, some people say there's always crises among the Maurani, and uh, I think that may be true. So, uh, I mean, would their teens uh, want to listen to Lady Gaga? And uh, do they, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just kind of wondering what kind of, do they listen to pop culture, Western pop culture? The, the younger generation does definitely, I and mean, okay. they've got cell phones and um, yep. all, right. all the all the trappings of modernity. But wow. um, and I think that that's been one of the challenges that the Waurani, particularly Christian Waurani, have faced. And that for the first generation, this idea of "In the name of Jesus, do not spear" was very effective because they knew what it was like to get to get killed or to watch your loved one be spear killed by right. uh, someone else. The younger generation, particularly the grandchildren. They're removed. I mean, not that there isn't still violence in the area, but it's not the kind of violence that they experienced earlier. And so the grandchildren don't really, that doesn't mean anything to them. And so it's finding aspects of the gospel that are important to them 
I think, I think you know, that speak to them in their situation. It's been a challenge for Christian Marani. Yeah. Because yeah. I would say from what people, what people tell me, and I haven't been down there in a while, but from what people tell me, it's something like about 20 to 25% of the people would be practicing Christians of one kind or another. Okay. But that means, you know, seven, 75% or so are not. Um, have they, do they, have they developed a, a self-governing church down there with indigenous leadership? Well, it's debatable. Um, some people say no, and I think, the, I think the, the issue is they've had trouble figuring out how to do it in a way that's compatible with their culture. Because Waurani culture is, is very much what we would call house church-oriented. House church because it was a kinship-based culture, mm-hmm. that to do things with your kin is really the, the natural way to do them, right. rather than necessarily to go out to a church building someplace mm-hmm. and do that. But there definitely are um, Waodani who are sincere Christians and pastors. Uh, not very many, but there are uh, some. And um, and there are others. There, is a few church, there are a few churches that have been constructed. Generally, the, the churches, though, are... are run to a certain extent by missionaries or outsiders. Um, but those people who have been um, in contact with Waiwani for quite a while still say that there are people at night who read the Bible to their... The, the young kids will read the Bible to their elders who don't always know how to read. Mm-hmm. And that there is prayer and different um, different clearings. Okay. I did. I was there, I was been about 10 or 15 years ago, I went to one clearing and saw this house church model kind of at work where the whole family would get together, but the family was the, the father and the mother and then their children and their, their grandchildren. And it was just everybody. You got quite a few people and then they would read the Bible and they would kind of talk to each other about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure there's really a church with, with a hierarchy set up, but this is a completely egalitarian society when they were contacted. They didn't have a word for Lord in the Bible. <laughs> really? No word for Kings, no word for anyone with any kind of authority. Did and they so have, because they would just did, did they have a concept of a creator God? They didn't really know. Um, Rachel and Dayuma chose, when they were trying to figure out what to do about that, they chose the name of a mythical figure whose name is Wingongi. And Wingongi, um, this is Catherine Peake, the woman, one of the women who was a Bible translator out there, she said he seemed like a fairly harmless person. He hadn't done anything bad. He'd done some creation. And supposedly he'd gone up to the upper world. And so they chose that, and then what they did was they kind of filled in the blanks or filled in the, the, the picture of who Wangongi was through teaching from the Bible. Because they either could have started from scratch or they started with someone that the Warani could have at least heard the name. Yes, And then yes. they told, told stories, and ultimately, of course, when they told the gospel story, uh, Jesus was the son of Wangongi. And so that's how that worked. But it was very difficult to do because of... There just wasn't weren't a lot of connection points. Yeah, and the yeah. were not particularly religious people. I mean, they they were much more caught up in the uh, in the moment in surviving this world right. than they were. Because Elizabeth Elliot wrestled a lot with the idea that they didn't really, didn't seem to care whether they went to heaven or not. <laughs> and how do you talk to people that don't seem to be a, don't seem to be attracted to the aspects of the gospel that you that we it's, we yeah, think they yeah. should be? Right. Right. Uh, what did you think of the movie The End of the Spear? Well, I was not. I thought it was good in the sense that it, first of all, they referred to the people as Waodani and not Alcas, which was a good move. <laughs> but um, I, as I said to some, I wrote a review of it, but as I said to someone afterwards, 
it was a movie about reconciliation, which I really supported, but it was all the wrong people got reconciled to each other. The, 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 the missionaries, or, or Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint Pilate, they were never really estranged from the Waurani, because the yes. families of the men who were killed knew that they, the Waurani had been, they didn't really understand what, was, what they were doing. They didn't kill the men because they were Christians. They killed right. them because they were in their territory and because the Waurani were mad. Yeah. But yeah. then, um, and, so, and also within the missionary community, there really were missionaries who needed to be reconciled with each other more than they needed to be reconciled with uh, the Waurani. Well, the message was a little bit deceptive. <laughs> yeah, well. That's an interesting, that's an interesting twist on it, because true, the climax of the movie is this reconciliation between Steve Saint and, I've uh, forgotten his name now, Minkani. Minkayani. He's a composite character. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Minkayani. Uh, Catherine, it's absolutely fascinating. I love the book. And um, I, I never realized how uh, complex the story was, um, but it's much richer. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Catherine T. Long, God in the Rainforest, A Tale of Martyrdom and Redemption, Redemption in Amazonian Ecuador. I'm Al Cresta.